Welcome back to the Talking Footy Podcast. Each week across the footy season, we're talking with the biggest names in the game. I'm Cameron Ling, and this week, our guest is none other than two-time premiership captain for the mighty Geelong Cats, now footy operations guru and soon-to-be Swan CEO, my very good mate, Tom Harley. In this podcast, I discussed with Tom about his journey of one game, one goal and one kick with Port Adelaide to becoming a Cats premiership skipper. I didn't aspire to be a captain of a footy club and I've never had been a captain of anything before, but where the club needed to go and the things that they wanted to do and stand for, I'm sure I was elevated that position on the back of doing the sort of the grunt work. And we talk about his involvement and recollections of the Steve Johnson suspension and redemption in 2007. All options were on the table from severing ties with Jono straight away. And then I think the maturity of the group was, well, we don't. We care about our teammates, and, and we absolutely care about Steve. He's a, he was a lovable rogue at that point in time of his life, and we didn't want Steve to be that person who would be perched on the bar at the Wangaratta pub saying, I could have done this and could have done that, because well, history now says that he did do that, and he did, he did do this. And so the decision was made to, you know, for want of a better way of saying, hit him where it hurts, which was take away the thing that he valued more than anything else, which was playing and training and being around the team. And also his new role as Sydney GM of footy and soon to be Sydney Swans CEO, the big dog. It's an interesting role. It's a really it's a really fascinating and complex role, a head of football or general manager of football, and you work hand in glove with the coach. It's funny, I look at the coach as the leader of the football department in the sense, and my position is, I guess, the manager of the football department. A champion of our game, on and off the field, Tom has been good enough to chat with me before the two sides close to his heart do battle in round 20. Welcome, Hales. We're talking footy. Righto, Hales, good to see you. Always good to see you, Lingy, especially down here in, uh, in Geelong. Um, tell us about, first of all, before we get to your time at Port Adelaide and then Geelong and the AFL and your journey you've been on... As a child, growing up, school, did you always love footy? Was footy always number one? Uh, I, I, in fir- yeah, I love footy. Um, I mean, I grew up in South Australia, anyone that knows me, I'm a parochial South Australian. Um, and uh, You do pronounce words funny over there. Yeah, I do, and it's starting to change a little bit. Um, uh, I've, I found myself in the last couple of years slipping into more of a chance and a grant and a dance. Oh, very good. Yeah, hit the dance floor. That's right, as opposed to dance and... and and the like, but um, uh, yeah, so parochial South Australian. Um, my old man played a lot of amateur footy in, in Adelaide, um, played for uh, Adelaide University and then St Peter's Old Collegians, which is the school that I went to. And so I sort of grew up in and around, in and around an amateur football club. Um, I'm one of uh, three boys and mum had three boys under three and you and I both know what it's like having young children, uh, Lingy, that... Uh, she deserves a medal for that, um, <laughs> but we certainly didn't appreciate that at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, three boys under three, um, we were, uh, you know, we weren't rat bags, but geez, we would have been a handful at the time. So we spent a lot of time growing up around footy. Um, and sports mad in general, other sports? Yeah, we were, yeah. So we were really fortunate as kids growing up. We had um, uh, we had a nice backyard, um, uh, a grass tennis court as it turned out, and we, that would be... That would be a cricket pitch in summer, tennis when you needed to be, um, and obviously a, a football oval in, in winter. Um, so yeah, so footy always grew up around footy. I was a I was a Bombers fan as a kid. Um, I think I think what happened was my I guess when I was a bit you know when you're about sort of five or six you start to get into 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 football and um, growing up in Adelaide uh, for me that was sort of like the mid '80s. So 1984, um, Nord won the premiership. Um, 
my grandfather was actually club doctor of South Adelaide Footy Club. So we had a, a line to South Adelaide, but uh, my best mate's father was doctor of the Nord Footy Club. So I settled up with him and, and Nord won the flag in 84. So I was a, a, a Nord fan and, um, and mum and dad actually went over to the VFL grand final in 84 as well, which the Bombers won. So um, a bit of a turncoat, jumped on the two winning teams in 84 <laughs> and so supported the, the Bombers in the VFL. Um, You're and then, smart man. Well, as a kid, as a kid, I guess from that point in time, um, as you get a bit older and play junior footy for the the Walkie Cats, um, which is a really great junior footy club in South Australia. That's um, well, I guess, been the breeding ground for a number of AFL players. Um, uh, you know, as you sort of progress through there and you get interested in football, Essendon were were my team and. Uh, went to the 1990 grand final, which they lost to Collingwood. Um, so obviously living in Adelaide, driving over. Um, celebrated the the Baby Bombers of 93. Um, and, uh, and the, I mean, when I look back on the end of my f- footy career, um, having worked closely with, um, obviously, Bomber Thompson, who was the Bombers player, working with Tim Watson at, uh, at Channel 7. Um, even at Port Adelaide, the first captain was Gavin Wanganeen. So, you know, as, as you know, Lingy, when you're a fan of the game and... and We've been both been fortunate enough to be involved in it. Uh, you get to meet um, and form relationships with some of your boyhood idols, and, and for me, it was uh, it was Nord and Barmy was actually the coach in '84 for Nord. Um, there's connections. There's connections everywhere. everywhere. So uh, yeah, so so for me, I was certainly a fan of the game. And, and obviously, grew up and, and school was a big part. I'm assuming, given you've you stuck even through your AFL career with your university studies and now what you're doing. But how did just tell me the story. So you were a, a priority selection for Port Adelaide when they first came into the competition. Is that how it worked? So yep. were you always targeted that you would be one of Port's selection? Uh, well, that's how it ended. Yeah, so so Port Adelaide, is, when they uh, entered the competition, their concessions were nowhere near what Gold Coast and the Giants were. Um, they had access, if you like, priority access to all South Australian um, registered players. So that was through the SANFL and then obviously the under-18s coming through the national championships. As it turned out, that under-18s year was a really good one for South Australia. So I think about 14 or 15 of the boys went on to be on Port's first list. Who were some of the names? Who were uh, uh, Stewie Jew, Warren Treadray, um, Nathan Eagleton, um, Peter Burgoyne, um, uh, Chad Corns was the year after. I'm sure I'm, forget- I'm sure I'm missing a few. But a really strong, you know, a really strong list. Um, and so I'll, back to the original part of the question, it was never, school was really important for me. Um, I was a fan of the game, but not necessarily, um, I certainly didn't have stars in my eyes to play um, anything beyond the first 18 at school. They were the heroes in, in my eyes. And um, I was a bit of a slow developer physically. So, um, you know, battled to make the teams in the sort of mid, mid years of high school, so the year 10. Um, but uh, yeah, had a growth spurt in year 12, really enjoyed my, my final year at school playing first 18 football. And I guess it's a bit, of a, a bit of a theme in what I've done probably since that time of 16, 17 is that if I'm passionate about something, I'll throw myself into it. And, and I was passionate about football. I had a growth spurt and I thought, well, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll, I'll try my luck at Nord um, in the under 19s and sort of go from there. And so that first year out of school, um, progressed through the under 19s and the reserves at Norwood and then was selected in the state under 18s which then went to the leading leading into the draft and was picked up by Port so to be fair it all came in as a massive rush um, uh, I certainly didn't start my first year out of school 
even contemplating playing for South Australia, let alone being drafted at the end of that year. So it all moved pretty quickly. And um, and I think looking back, I know that call it lack of confidence or lack of confidence in your own ability. Um, took a while for me to catch up. So my first couple of years at Port when I was listed, I certainly didn't feel like I was um, uh, at that level. Um, and as you know, you, you that is a great trait to have on one, one side of the coin, but it is very competitive and dog-eat-dog. Dog. And um, it wasn't until probably um, the first two years at Port and arriving at Geelong, we thought, well, hang on a second, you're here to have a career, which means you're going to have to ultimately um, jump over the people who are currently in front of you. So... Uh, so yes, I never, re- never. I was I certainly wasn't on the trajectory that these players are these days that come through the the TAC Cup and the national championships. But um, uh, there's obviously more than one way to get through to a career. One game, one three minutes, Lingy. <laughs> three minutes. <laughs> one game. Yeah, one game. One game. <laughs> one goal. Yep. One kick. That's right. In fact, prior, this is before Champion Data, and I, I'd like I'd love to know it for a fact, but someone has told me that they saw a stat sheet after that game, and it was actually donuts, but one goal because <laughs> I didn't touch the ball. I'll be honest, I, I didn't touch the ball. It it uh, it fell from a marking contest on my foot, and I socket it through from three meters out. So I, I, to say it's a kick is is very technical because I didn't really kick You're it. You're a goal a game player, though. I was there, and that yeah. dried up pretty pretty quickly. <laughs> pretty quickly. In fact, I was we're out at training. Um, we're down in Geelong at the moment before the Sydney game, uh, before the Geelong game against Sydney um, and I was just out on Simmons Stadium last night with Nick Smith and he's uh, lining up for goal and he said oh, so how many goals do you kick <laughs> I said 12 smooch and uh, and I said how many of you go he says I've got 10 <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, uh, I did say that I started off at a goal a game but it dried up pretty quickly after that he might set himself to kick a few now just to get past he might you, I, he, I did say that what about your first shot on goal Lingy? should we talk about that, Is that-, <laughs> <laughs> that no actually it was my uh it was my second game. Right, the, right, uh, right. The infamous one against yep. Essendon. Yep. Um, yep. Now let's not talk too much no, about no. that, shall we? <laughs> no. He had Ling, but he went for goal. Stoneham keeps it oh. back in. Did that really well, and Ling will kick a goal. Oh, oh no! He's kicked it out of the ball. Oh. oh, that just about breaks the record. That. And that just about sums up most people's feelings. How could you miss that? It took about 10 years for uh, Geelong fans to stop getting stuck into me about that. Best not bring it up then. Nah. I think you got a few credits in the bank after that. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Um, tell us how how it all came about, the move from Port to Geelong then. Obviously, hadn't ta- hadn't got a lot of opportunities at Port, but as you admit, probably hadn't really grabbed those opportunities yep. yet. How did it happen from the from Port to the Cats? Um, so it was just, just, it was just, it was a trade fundamentally. Um so I had those first two years on Port's list. And actually, my first pre-season at Port um, had a really good pre-season. And, and you can imagine it was a young list of, I think even back then it might have been 52 players, but a lot of under-18 kids. Um, and uh, I was able to make a reasonably strong impression through the pre-season and, and, and got a run in what was back then the ANSET Cup. Um, starting to show my age a bit when we talk about the ANSET Cup. But um, uh, then missed out on the start of the season at Port and hurt my knee for Norwood. Um, so I got set back a little bit in that, that first probably couple of months. Um, Norwood at that point in time, 1997, 98. Um, and I guess it's, I mean, for a bit of context, if you're not playing seniors for Adelaide and Port back then, you were just, um, you filtered out into the SANFL, um, which ha- presented challenges in the sense that the SANFL clubs had their own agendas to run. They were there to win premierships and, and, 
say in my case, Port saw me developing as a defender, but Norwood had a really strong back six, and so I had to find another position for Norwood. And as a result, I played a lot of twos footy actually. Um, so SNFL reserve. So I was three rungs below, where, or two rungs below where I ultimately needed to be. Um, Norwood won the flag in 1997, um, and uh, I was actually. Um, uh, dropped for that grand final um, in the Norwood Seniors uh, because the SNFL grand final was two years after, it was was the week after the AFL grand final which Adelaide won that year and Brett James and Aaron Keating played in two grand finals in a week um, and so uh, and then the following year was was spent you know, all by that one game for um, Port um, at Norwood again primarily in the senior side but still a couple of reserves games as well um, and maybe I was naive. I didn't think a lot about my spot on the list. I think these days um, there's a lot more talk about players' contracts and trades and delistings and, and whatnot. Um, I probably just assumed I'd get another opportunity at Port, but um, uh, played in the reserves grand final for Norwood that year. Then literally the very next day um, we're celebrating that and uh, my old man came and met me and said, look, Geelong are interested in a trade. Can we head over on the Thursday or whatever day it was? And So I flew over to Geelong not knowing where it is. Um, other than I've got a lot of family in Melbourne and I've just assumed Geelong was a suburb of Melbourne. <laughs> Shows you how wet behind the ears I was. Um, I realised once we were sort of driving from Tullamarine into Geelong that it was certainly a bit further out than just a suburb of Melbourne. But um, for me, it was they were interested and they, Gary Ayres was coach at the time and, and he explained a, a specific role where they saw me fitting in. Um, and... For me, it was as much about the clarity of that opportunity. Um, and also, I was, I was 20 years old, lived in Adelaide all my life, and pretty keen on a life change, regardless of where it could have been anywhere, but it happened to be Geelong. Um, Port Adelaide had just changed coach from Jack Cale to Mark Williams. Um, and Choco and I have always had a really strong relationship, and his view was, look, we'd like to keep you and like to give you an opportunity, but we've also got to give opportunities to, you know, Chad Corns, um, Warren Treadray, um, Stewie Jew, some of these other ones who ended up having great careers and some others who didn't necessarily have careers. So so it was a trade. I was in the end traded for pick 37 um, in the draft and I was part of a package of players that actually came to Geelong that year. Um, there was Jason Mooney, Simon Arnott from Sydney, Tristan Lynch and Scott Bamford from Brisbane and myself from Port Adelaide. So uh, that was my one and only year under Gary Ayres. So he was, I've got to say, between... Um, Stephen Wells, obviously the recruiter. Um, as you, as I understand, it was the key driver in that recruitment um, with Stephen. So, um, obviously, uh, extremely grateful for that opportunity to to come in Geelong. And then there was a bit of luck and sliding doors and those sorts of things. Was able to have a career after that. Well, first impressions, or maybe not first, but impressions yeah. of Geelong in those early years, because it was an interesting time to yeah. come to the Cats. Yeah, you had Airsy for that one year, but yeah. then he leaves. Yep. Lee Colbert was the captain of the club. Yep. He leaves and yep. goes to North Melbourne. Brian Cook's come on board. Yep. They discover or make public the huge debt, the, yep. the fact that the club was in a world of trouble. Yep. Uh, as a player, I suppose you're focused on mm. what you're trying to do. What, what was what was your impressions of the whole thing? Did you think, yeah. what the hell have I done? I've come to a club that's in a world of trouble, or well, the big the the, the biggest talking point in town was the um, the young redhead playing full forward for the Falcons in '99. <laughs> this this great white hope coming through the ranks, kicking tons of goals. Um, but um, now, in all seriousness, it's I mean you'd appreciate this, Ling. I think when you have a when you're starting out and you get drafted, and um, 
And I'm sure there would have been some differences with regards to you getting drafted to Geelong because you knew the town and the place and all those sorts of things and supported the club growing up. But um, you become quite insular. You think, what do I need to do to get a game? And um, you're not really interested. Well, it's not that you're not interested. You're probably just unaware of all the peripheral um, happenings of a footy club. And I'm a firm believer as your career progresses and you can't necessarily step over any of these rungs, if you like, you've got to have that internal um, focus. Then you get a game and then you start to think about how am I going to contribute to the team winning? Um, then you move into that bracket. Then once you're in that bracket, you probably then start to think about the other things, like how is the club set up financially and you know what's the future look like? So, How can I influence others? That's right, all of that. And then Geelong's a bit unique in the sense the next iteration after that is, well... I appreciate that the football club has great standing within the community and we're drivers of that, so how can we position the town in a great light? And blah. But certainly when I was drafted in 99, I was very much in that first um, bucket and uh, it wasn't probably until um, the end of the 99 season. So I, so I came over and I carried an injury over with me, actually with a, a pretty serious knee operation and started in the reserves and was made my debut in round 14 and then played from that point on. But it wasn't until the end of that point, um, at the end of the season, as you rightly put, it became pretty clear that the club was in dire straits financially, $9 million worth of debt. Lee Colbert walking out was a really interesting one because he was he was captain and couldn't meet a better bloke. Yeah. Um, but he didn't play that year, so I didn't, have a, I didn't have an existing relationship with him other than him just being a really nice guy to all the players. Um, so that would have been a huge shock, but probably not to first-year players as much as it was to everyone else. Um, and then Gary Ayres obviously moved on to Adelaide with that opportunity to go and coach the Crows. So from a selfish point of view, it didn't really matter because like I've, I've, my career started now. I've played nine games in a row and I think I'm in. Um, but looking back, it was clearly a um, pretty tumultuous time, wasn't it? And uh, um, you, know, you mentioned a few of those people in particular, um, Frank Costa and Brian Cook and... Obviously, Mark Thompson came on board as coach. Um, that was probably as significant a, a, a historical moment as, as the club's ever had, I think. My, my take on that time was that the two greatest appointments the club's ever made. Mm. Mm. And now that, uh, I didn't know Red Chicky or times yeah. like that, but yep. it was Brian Cook and Mark Thompson. Yep. Because one off-field and the other one on-field and yep. both merging together at times set mm. a set a path and set a, a culture around mm. the club that was then going to grow over time. Mm. Did you, now you look back, I suppose, mm. did you sense that as well, that those those two people, together with others, there's yeah. certainly others involved in helping that, but they really helped shake up a, a culture and yep. turn it into something pretty special? No doubt. I think, I think um, if I, I might be wrong, but I think the timeline was... Um, Frank Costa came in as president, appointed Brian, who appointed Bomber. Yep. Um, and I think the two things were, um, Brian had obviously been a successful CEO at West Coast and um, had seen what a successful club looks like off the field, but could clearly make significant contributions to what it, the on-field support should look like. And Bomber, um, I remember when he first came in, he was... Um, He'd, he'd only experienced success, you know. He played for Essendon through the 80s and finished in the mid-90s and they were a pretty successful team and then went to coach at North Melbourne when they were a successful team. So I've got no doubt, um, if you're having this chat with Bomber, that his early impressions of Geelong would have been a club that was trying really hard 
to be average and that was a bit of a throwaway line of the club at the time so no I, I agree with that and and clearly from a uh, you know building the team off the field was was cookies domain um and you only have to look at the stadium now some you know 15 years later or 17 years later it's totally different and 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 to be fair, Bomber went to the draft and drafted your your draft in the first time round, and um, two years later had the draft of um, you know Bartell, Johnson, Kelly, Ablett, um, and then that became the genesis of, of what's been a, a really powerful team. To to fast forward, not to gloss over those years, but yeah. you know, getting towards we spent plenty of time talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> getting to that successful time, yeah. but also referring to what we've just been talking about, did or well, how much did your time at Port Adelaide and, yeah. and as you said, uh, just not quite getting that opportunity, grasping yeah. that opportunity. You moved to Geelong, some yeah. of those earlier yeah. um, different years and different experiences, uh, how hard you realised you had to work, all these different things. How mm. did that shape you as the leader more so than the player, the yep. leader and person that you became to lead the team yep. in such a successful era from 2007 onwards? Oh, it's a good question. I, I think that... I think the um, that is a good question, Ling. I haven't thought about it probably as deeply as that before, but I think they're a little bit hand in glove because um, I, I when I when I came to Geelong, I, I the penny did drop, um, and Alan McConnell, who's now with the Giants, was an assistant coach at Geelong, and he was a, a key influencer in in that for me. That I was here to play, I was in Geelong to play senior footy. Um, and therefore, I needed to do everything in my power. I knew I'd, I clearly had um, limitations, like all players do. So I was going to be the, in my mind, I, I was going to be the player that worked as hard, if not harder, than any other player to forge your career. So therefore, had developed a great respect for the game and the challenges of the game. And then, as a result of that, I think, and I'm sure this resonates with you too, that as a result of doing that. Um, you're probably not aware at the time that you are doing it, but you're setting a standard of, of, of um, what's required. Um, and and it was clearly a, a trait of yours too, Lingy, with regards to that. So so we had some, some players who were probably in time elevated to leadership positions on the back of doing the work as opposed to necessarily being the best player. Um, and that was certainly something that was... that uh, the, the club... Um, stood for I think in terms of what Bomber stood for what Cookie stood for and what Frank st- stood for so by the time um, I, 2007 came about I, I, I didn't aspire to be a captain of a footy club and um, I'd never had been a captain of anything before but um, where the club needed to go and the things that they wanted to do um, and stand for I'm sure I was elevated that position on the back of doing the sort of the grunt work um, so it wasn't. It was. I think it was pretty hand in glove in the the on field stuff, and then ultimately into the leadership stuff. The just just to quickly that time when you were appointed yep. captain. Do you remember that time? Sort of late two thousand six mm. was a was an awful year. Given mm. uh, given expectations had risen. I think it was because of the expectation, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it, and we just certainly didn't live up to them, and we had a had a r- terrible run through the middle of the year. I mean it. Mm. The bit that always sticks in my mind is the game against West, West Coast. Coast yeah. We're up by a heap and yeah. end up losing. Mm. The review happens, quite a public review. Mm. Do you remember that time and and 
the players, the leaders' mm. role in mm. that time, your mm. role, and then ultimately yep. decisions were made that led to you being captain? Yeah, yeah I do. There was, um, I th- you're right, it was expectation was enormous um, going into the season and, and won the NAB Cup or Wizard Cup or whatever it was back then and started the season well. Um, but you and I both know um, we were probably doing that on the back of talent and there, was, there, were some, there were some internal things that clearly weren't quite right um, that got rectified as a result of the review. Um, and, you know, we were, in, as I guess, as leaders of the young leaders of the footy club, we were involved in some of those discussions. And there were a couple of really, I think, poignant moments in 2006. One was that West Coast game. Um, they obviously ended up winning the flag, but Geelong were up by, gosh, over 40 points at half time, I reckon, and blew that one, which sort of led into a really cr- critical review of the fitness and conditioning of the team. And I do remember a meeting up in one of the super boxes in in uh, Caninia Park where um, you know some of the players and staff were involved and you know what are we actually going to do about this um, and then then Brian obviously at the board's direction or maybe it was Brian telling the board what he's going to do is review the whole football department Pardon me, and that became really really public um, uh, the yeah, obviously Bomber became the face of it all um, and he had staunch support from the playing group and, and obviously um, uh, we know what happened after that. He, he still had a year to run his contract, as I, I think, but um, clearly he stayed on. Um, the, twos were, the twos were still going well. The VFL side were, were, were playing well and so um, the senior side finished at the end of round 22, got smashed by Hawthorne. It was just a, a fitting end to what was a pretty tumultuous season, yeah. to be fair. Um, and the twos kept going on, um, and uh, and I remember, um, you know, we were all involved in that review and at different sort of levels. And I just remember I was on my way to Stephen King's house to go to the VFL Grand Final, um, and Cookie gave me a call and said, "Can you talk?" And I was in the car. I said, "Yeah, I can talk." And um, he said that I was going to be appointed captain later on that day, and and he said, "Look, don't tell anyone. I've just got to make another couple of phone calls." and Okay, that's no worries. And I was obviously a bit chuffed, totally blindsided by it. And then I've pulled up to Kingy's house and knocked on the door and Kingy's on the phone. Um, and uh, and he just said, look, mate, give me two secs. So I went back out to the car and five minutes later, Kingy came into the car and um, he shook my hand and he'd obviously, um, he'd, he'd stepped down from captaincy, I think about three or four weeks earlier, um, once the season had finished. But Cookie was obviously just talking Kingy through that. And, and then from that, that point in time, um, there was a fair bit of change on the back. You know, Neil Barm came in as the head of football. Um, uh, Jared Murphy and leading teams came in in leadership capacity. Um, Brenton Sanderson came in as an assistant coach. There, were, there was enough and some phys- and some on the conditioning side of things, um, two key appointments there as well. So there was, a, there was a fair bit of change, which invigorated the group, but more importantly, probably put everyone on notice that, OK, the club's invested in this current group of players and, and the senior coach. Now you got to get into action, and um, and it uh, obviously went from there. But there, I mean, there was obviously there was hiccups at the start of that season. I'm not sure anyone foresaw how dominant that team would become. I think everyone knew that there was some talent there. Um, but looking back and reflecting on 06 to 07, and now in my current role, it was a great life experience. If you want to have a, a life in footy, you know, you saw a club that wasn't going so well. You saw a club that actually confronted that, dealt in facts and made some significant changes as a result of dealing in the facts. And then you saw what a successful club 
looks like. And 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 back that first year when Bomber started Geelong and he spoke about him being involved in successful teams at Essendon and North Melbourne, you don't know what you don't know. And and you and I are both extremely lucky to know what a really good high functioning footy team looks like as a result of that experience at Geelong. Sunday, join us for Game Day. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our 10th season of Game Day. Hosted by Hamish McLaughlin, every Sunday at 10am on the channels of 7. She caught up exclusively with Rui this morning. They're pretty confident as well that structurally it's OK. Christian Petrarca's in love with Christian Petrarca. <laughs> it's where all of footy's big names come to play. I, I want to get to... Post football, and yep. I want to get to your role in the Swans and the exciting new role coming up, and I suppose some of the lessons that you've, what you're talking about exactly there, and how you can use those. But two more about 2007. Yep. One negative, and one extremely <laughs> positive. Yeah. The, I suppose the negative became a positive. Yep. But your role, and uh, from your recollections, but also all of the the roles involved in the strong stance you took against we took against Steve yep. Johnson. Yep. Um, obviously, a highly talented player, unbel- and gone on to have an unbelievable career. Mm. Do you do do you remember how we arrived at the decision to to do what we did, and 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 almost why we yep. arrived at that decision? The troubled Geelong footballer was picked up by Wangaratta Police at six a.m. on Christmas Eve. Very drunk, very messy, according to one source. So much so, he spent four hours in a police cell and released after being charged. Senior Geelong officials first learning of the incident from Seven News Today. In a statement, football boss Neil Baum said, we are bitterly disappointed and that there has been a delay in telling us about it. It's not the first time the Cats footballer has spent a night behind bars. In 2005, Johnson was locked up for one night at Geelong Police Station. Just 12 months earlier, he'd broken his ankle jumping over a fence at the Torquay Hotel. I just want to get the respect back from the teammates and the public for uh, what, I can, what I can show in the future for this footy club. It was all your call, wasn't it, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I do remember that. It was... It was um, Clearly in that pre-season, the end of 2006 going into season 2007, there was a lot of change, there was a lot of angst, but most importantly there was a lot of purpose going forward. You know, everyone was really clear. Um, there was, within the playing group, it was a sense of, I certainly sensed, um, enough's enough of being average. We've now got all the support around us. We're talented as a group because we'd been successful a couple of years previously, relatively. Um, and we're, the group was absolutely committed to um, higher standards. Now, the issue with Steve, or the challenge with Steve, was that he was dragging, by his own admission, he was dragging the chain with a coming back from a knee injury, and he wasn't prepared to start that pre-season as he should have been. Um, and then we sat down as a leadership group, didn't we, and spoke to a few of those players who we thought might have been at risk over the Christmas period, and he was one of them. And and he committed to getting back and getting himself right, and and um, uh, and he didn't do that. Clearly, he he, um, he got himself in a little bit of strife uh, when he was back home in Wangaratta. Um, and I do remember that meeting for a slightly different reason because I was, I think I must have been a veteran, a ten-year player that I still had another week of leave <laughs> up my sleeve, and I was down at my now wife's um, parents' place in South Coast, New South Wales. Um, on a phone link to that meeting when the rest of the leadership group um, were 
in I think Barmy's office or Bomber's office or someone with Jared Murphy talking about Steve and and it got very pointed pretty quickly and it um, it probably could have gone well all all options were on the table from severing ties with Jono straight away um, and then I think the maturity of the group was well we don't we care about our teammates and and we absolutely care about Steve he's a he, well we love him and he was a lovable rogue at that point in time of his life and um, we didn't want Steve to be that person who would be perched on the bar at the Wangaratta pub saying I could have done this and could have done that because well history now says that he did do that and he did, he did do this but so there was a lot of care about him um, so the decision was made to you know, for want of a better way of saying, hit him where it hurts, which was take away the thing that he valued more than anything else, which was playing and training and being around the team. Um, so it was a strong, it was clearly a strong stance. But my recollection of it, um, and there's always been a lot of commentary about it since, is the motivation was never to be a watershed moment for the club. It was never, okay, we're going to draw a line in the sand and this is the way things are going to be done from now on. It was just an organic decision that... It, that um, was made. Um, the byproduct of that was okay. Well, geez, that's a very strong stance that they've taken. But unless I read it wrong, I'd, my sense was we we never spoke specifically about okay, we got to make a stand. No, no. Um, and it was, I think you've summed up well. It was about the player, yeah, about and the person, yep. of Steve Johnson yep. and the the idea that we cared enough to want to yeah. want to make him better, but yep. we cared enough to hurt him in the short term. Yeah, that's right. To yeah, yeah. make him appreciate what yeah. he had, but also for him to then come to the party, which yep. he did. He did. His, his response was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. He, he um, you know, it was a very public fall from grace. Um, and quite rightly, he had a lot of things to sort out with regards to some of the relationships. But I remember having a coffee with him about a month later. Um, and so, so for a bit of context, he was cut basically umbilical cord cut there, there and then. Um, any preparation he was going to have for his return in round six was going to be done away from the club. He had to train VFL hours after hours, he had to go and get himself a job, he couldn't use the gym. It was pretty brutal in hindsight. But I remember seeing him that month after and he was I'd never seen him look better. He was absolutely ripped. He's a One thing a lot of people don't know about Steve, he's a, he's a fair athlete. <laughs> he can seriously run and get fit. And push himself. And p- absolutely punish himself. And he just looked fit. He presented well. Um, he acknowledged and accepted what happened. And um, he will tell you that the team started two and three and he came back in and then they went on a roll. <laughs> but, but to be fair, he's probably not too far off the mark. He, um, um, it was he, amazing, wasn't it? His self-belief never wavered. Never. It? That's what makes the great yeah. players great. But Yeah. Yeah. No, it was there was... There was there's a lot of things I can't relate to Jono about, and that's one of them. But he, uh, um, it was enormous, and and the, I guess the most important thing was the shift that got him banished in the first place was not being honest with the leadership group, and to get back into the team, he committed to some things that were pretty, you know, for him were significant lifestyle changes, and he, to his credit, he stuck to them, yeah. absolutely stuck fat to them. Um, and, you know, he got validation for preparation and um, went on to have, well, still having, one of the, uh, you know, Hall of Fame calibre career. He's been a, been a marvel. Fast forward now to the really good part of that year. <laughs> what are your memories of that, that special day? Yeah. He talked to some of the guys, maybe mm. the more confident ones, like yeah. Steve, he said, oh, we're always going to win yeah. in a quarter yeah. time. Oh, we had it under control, <laughs> all this. 
Yeah. I never relaxed. Until no, you didn't leave. About halfway through the last quarter, I didn't. I yeah. didn't relax at the best yeah. of times. Yeah. Did you think we were going to win? And throughout the game, what, yeah. what were your memories of of that that day when you became a premiership captain of the footy? Yeah, I, I um, confident in the confident in the quality of the team. Um, Bomber made it painfully clear on the Monday of grand final week that if we thought we'd just rock up and win the game, we'll kidding ourselves. Um, so he, he coached that week really well. Um, I've, I've sort of, you know, it, it's hard to explain to people when obviously the result was 119 points. But then you, to your point, you, you know me as well as anyone, I'm quite conservative as well. And I was sitting there at three-quarter time, 90 points up, thinking, okay, two goals, a goal every two minutes. They can still probably <laughs> – we can, we can still probably lose this. Um, I think I was still on the same yeah, thing. Yeah, so that was – yeah, we can just convince ourselves that the team needed that. But yeah. I don't reckon Steve Johnson and Andrew Mackey were thinking like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, do, I, I remember one instance in that might have been in the – well, in the last quarter we uh, kicked a goal. I can't remember who kicked the goal. And Mackey comes up and – and he's getting really pumped and talking about premierships. And um, I actually, that, that was the moment I thought this is actually going to happen. But then quickly gave him a clip and said, oh, get on the road and over there, he's getting up the flank. But um, uh, yeah, I think three quarter time, to be fair, was it was feeling reasonably confident that the job was going to get done. And, um, and the elation clearly on as soon as the siren went and the immediate celebration after that was just phenomenal. And unique in a sense, I think, to the club because of um, you know the, the relatively recent grand final failures and and uh, you know the amount of outpouring of thanks and gratitude from supporters was just phenomenal. And you still you still get it now, which is you know I'm working at another club now, obviously the Sydney Swans, and um, you still get that from Geelong supporters. So it was uh, I was it was it was a remarkable achievement from a, uh, a an organisation. I was going to say a group of players, but it was far more than that. Um, that uh, that obviously got the job done, and I can only imagine how proud guys like Frank Costa and um, Alex Popescu and those guys would have been, given the time and in emotional and financial investment they'd made put into the club and backed their systems in, and got that result. It was uh, yeah, it was remarkable. To win their first flag in 44 years, Geelong to grasp the Grail at last. And the captain's got the footy. And they're ready to run on. And there it is. It's the Cats. They've come so close so many times in the last 44 years. But the torture is finally over. Geelong are the premiers for 2007. It's fitting you unbelievable, Bobby. I certainly do appreciate you. I wondered why the roads were closed as I was trying to drive here and there was ticker tape everywhere. I oh, come on, Lee. Hull's must have arrived no, that's back not true. That's, I, I, I don't come back very often. Um, and that's not certainly not by choice. I've, you know, my life's taken a different turn, um, family up in Sydney. But, uh, look, I'll be, I'll be, I'd be lying if I said I don't enjoy coming back to Geelong when, when the Swans play here. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic time of life. It was a great time of life. Certainly was it quickly. Oh eight, pass. Great, great, <laughs> great year until yeah. the last. Oh mm. nine, 
an incredibly intense year mm. that ended in an re- amazing game, brutal mm. game of football. Mm. Did did we need to lose 08 to win 09? Or did we... Did Hawthorne pinch one in 08 and we pinch one in 09? How, see, uh, those, see those years. So yeah. Obviously, you've got to be the best team on yeah. the day, so you can't argue with the results. But I, from those years, just a quick snapshot. I think what was learnt from those years was the... Um, well, from the 08 year was that it is a marathon and you've got to be the best team playing the best footy in September. Uh, so I think we learned that from 08 and the 2009 year. Um, so then by extension, you could probably say losing a grand final was a good thing um, and may not may or may not have got the result in 2009. Um, and it also gave us all an appreciation of the gut-wrenching lows you experience in losing a grand final, which, again, when you're sort of putting, you know, without getting too philosophical, life's just about putting things into your kit bag and and experiencing things, and ultimately it's how you respond to those experiences, and I think as a group the club clearly responded well after 2008. I've always said, um, now in my recollections of my career, Mm. 2009 was almost the least enjoyable year of football I ever had. Yeah. Because no win throughout the season mattered yeah, yeah. until we got that yeah. opportunity to redeem. Yeah, ourselves. I agree with. I, I agree with that. It was is. I was listening to the way you sort of in, introduced that period, this sort of 0809 period, and you described 2009 as intense. It was hellish. You know, it, the expectation on the group, mainly probably to be fair, put on by ourselves, was intense. There was nothing enjoyable about it. You. you, you winning games and winning them well, then you're losing games and everyone's writing you off. And um, for me, I guess I had a slightly different perspective to the rest of the team, knowing that I was I was playing each, playing my last season. I knew that and physically was really sort of struggling. But it was just, talk, if, okay, if you sort of say 2007 was, was that sheer elation, um, 2009 was just relief. It was just, oh, God... <laughs> Thank God we got through that. I mean, and, and St Kilda was a formidable opponent. Yep. You know, they were at the top of their game. So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing day. And um, as I said, I knew that was my last game. So part of it was a bit bittersweet in the sense that um, having this amazing high, but selfishly knowing that I'm never going to do it again. Um, there's a tinge of sadness in that game. And in a funny sort of way, watching the 11 grand final, which um, you obviously led the team to, Lingy, just in the stands was great. It was just, it was, you know, as, as a fan at that stage, just to watch the team, knowing everyone involved, um, um, but not necessarily having to <laughs> be as invested as others, um, was, was it sounds a bit glib, was as enjoyable as probably 09, because <laughs> there were parts that weren't that enjoyable. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's nice to hear that. I remember just quickly back to 07, how good it was to hear the guys who'd missed out, mm. the pre, you know, Billy and Baz and these mm. guys, mm. how happy they were mm. for the team in 07. And yeah. that happiness of being a Geelong player yeah. is just happy to see the club doing really well. In retirement, yep. you had a... Four years, five years in the media. Uh, five years. Five years yeah. working at Channel Seven yeah. before you were stabbed in the yeah. back by me. And Felt you coming <laughs> like a train. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to have any conversations with Louis Martin and uh, Tim Warner. Just uh, hang on, Lingy's coming. I better, I better get out of here. <laughs> oh, Not at all, mate. Not at all. Not um, at all. It, 
was it the was it the pull of Clubland and yeah. that that team feel that you yeah. you missed you craved yeah. or to to then join up with the Swans as GM of footy? Yeah, it was. It was. Um, I had a great time at Channel Seven, and um, you know we've both been fortunate to finish. Um, well, finish at the pinnacle, really, in terms of um, team sport. And and as a result of that, I think it would be fair to say both acknowledge that you get opportunities that others might not. And and, and Channel 7 was one for me. Um, and I loved it, you know, working with Dennis and Bruce and Tim and Richo and Lee and all those guys was just great. You're calling footy, having fun. Um, and it was... You know, not as flippant as a means to an end for me, but it was something that I was just going to enjoy my time. Um, it was just a weekend commitment. I was living up in Sydney, um, but I'd, I'd, I'd studied whilst I played in um, uh, commerce, a Bachelor of Commerce, and spent some time on the board of the Players Association. I had a real interest in football administration. Um, but uh, uh, I was obviously up in Sydney and um, got a great opportunity uh, through Channel 7 to work on the Friday night footy. And then also during the week, I was working for AFL New South Wales in game development. Um, so I, I was really busy for those first four years out of the game. The fifth year in Channel 7, I just did Channel 7. Um, st- stayed at home with my w- one-year-old at the time. But um, but it was, yeah, I had an eye clearly to, to get um, involved in administration. And and it just so happened that the timing of it was about five years. And, and being we made a family decision to stay in Sydney. My wife, Felicity, and I, and at that stage, our first son, Jimmy, um, and an opportunity came to the Swans. And uh, it's probably by then, to be fair, I mean, we've just spent 20 minutes recounting your football career. Um, Then I'd made a decision to have a career in football. um, And then you have to open your eyes to working for someone else. Um, And the the Sydney Swans opportunity came about, and, um, and I just thought, what a great opportunity to work for a club that I'd fiercely rem- admired from afar um, and uh, clearly being up in Sydney for those five years getting to work closely with them in a different capacity and then ultimately working for them it was um, too good an opportunity to pass up well they had they have as well as had the, the mm. famed bloods culture yeah. um, Geelong while you were there was trying to build yeah. a, a culture and now now certainly yeah. do have that yeah how are they similar how are they different yeah. uh, what's What's Sydney been like yeah, um, compared to the Cats? It's a really good question, Lingy. You know, it's one I get asked often. Um, all clubs are clearly different. Um, clubs, some clubs appear to have similarities more so than others. Um, the cultural alignment at the Swans and Geelong is really similar um, in terms of uh, um, the the values of the players. It's, it's interesting even when we sort of look back to when we were playing, um, had some great battles with the Swans. But then at Brownlow nights, you'd gravitate towards... The two clubs tended to gravitate towards each other. So there's a lot of mutual respect between that playing group and the one that we had. Um, so culturally, really similar. Um, the differences, if you like... And I think... And culturally, not only culturally very similar, but a real fierce commitment to being competitive always um, and, and not lowering standards. Um, the differences, clearly... Uh, one club's been in Geelong since um, 1859 and the Swans prior to their South Melbourne connection have been in Sydney a new market since 1982 so that's different clearly very different but um, in terms of the pure football side of things um, 
there, there are some similarities for sure. The, the role that you are currently in and, and obviously yeah. at the end of next year taking up the, uh, the head honcho role, yeah. the CEO, yeah. Yeah. you talk about setting standards as a leader, as a player, mm-hmm. uh, also um, with, with your role with the Swans yep. now setting standards, being strong, mm-hmm. creating a culture, mm-hmm. you now have to do something that you never had to do as a player, which is hire and fire. Yep. The, the, the ruthless uh, yep. part of you has got to come out even more. Yep. How do you go with that? The fact you do have to end people's dreams, yeah. players' dreams and delist them. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, it's, I mean, that's, that's part of the job and, and um, it's an interesting role. It's a really, it's a really fascinating and complex role. A, a head of football or general manager of football, and um, you work hand in glove with the coach. Um, the coach, it's it's funny. I look at the coach is the leader of the football department in the sense, and my position is, I guess, the manager of the football department. Um, John and I have a really strong relationship, and uh, obviously spend a lot of time talking about what's happening now and the future direction of the department, and really. Part of my role is to help facilitate what the coach wants and needs and support around him. Often, I said when I took the, the role, it's um, let's be honest, not a renovator's delight. The Swans. There was a <laughs> it was a team coming off uh, um, a number of grand finals, and and I certainly took a lot of um, responsibility. Took that as a great responsibility to to just keep it <laughs> on the rails, if you like. Uh, always looking for continual improvement, but. Um, uh, it was a great opportunity and still is a great opportunity to come in and continually learn off others that have done it really well for a long period of time. So, um, But it is, the, the, when I say the complex nature of the role, it, it's football's basically a people business and there's you know 46 players and over 40 staff and um, you're in a high-pressure, high-performance environment and, and, um, and as we know, um, you can't... Well, I guess people moving on is inevitable, both players and staff, and it's not an easy part of the job. What's harder, doing that or being a dad? <laughs> I love being a dad. I, 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 um, yeah, I did have that year off working, um, so I did the commentary on the Friday nights but fundamentally stayed at home whilst Felicity worked and loved it. But it, we both know it's, it's um, as I said at the very start, um, for mum to raise three boys under three, um, good luck to her. And, uh, and Dodsey Do- 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 yeah. Do- is doing a great job, I bet. <laughs> Uh, and not selling your good self shortling, I'm oh, sure. Oh, no, no, no. Dodsy's doing all of it, guarantee you that. I just want to finish on a couple of quick ones, just fire a few, uh, few oh, of the old... Quick hands. Uh, is this, just uh, quick hands, right. yeah. yeah. Not, not stitch-up ones, just a um, couple of quick ones. Who was your favourite... Well, you've probably answered this, but who was your favourite footy player to watch growing up? Uh, Tim Watson, early days, then James Heard. Best player you played with? Present company excluded. <laughs> no, it definitely excluded. Um, Matthew Scarlett. A lot would say Gary Ablett Jr. Mm. I, um, I'm a probably biased towards the defenders, but um, this is not downplaying Gary as a player or yourself or Jono or Lingy or, uh, or Smitty or all of Boris. <laughs> Forgot about Corey Enright. He's not a bad player. <laughs> He's solid. Um, but Scarlett was a fullback. Was, um, to, to see up close and personal was phenomenal. Best player you played against? Um, Uh, if I say my, I'll, I'll say most challenging opponent was um, Nick Revolt, Matthew Richardson. Yeah, because of work rate, just work, and just skill, but work rate, work rate, and then what I thought playing as in key defence was with the best key forwards is they didn't make mistakes. If if Nick Revolt 
got his hands to the ball, he was going to mark it. Um, never fumbled and just kept you honest and uh, and obviously saw his retirement the other week and um, hats off to that career. It was extraordinary. I don't know if they've ever have told a lie about you, but the biggest lie the media's ever told about you. <laughs> never? Oh, oh, geez, I, I've never thought about that. <laughs> if they ever said I was a good player, that might be a bit of a fib. <laughs> might be a bit of a fib. Yeah. No, I don't know. Don't be a sly. No, I can't think of one. No, no. Might I'll, I'll, I'll text you back. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in twenty years' time? Oh, so I'll be sixty by then, Ling. <laughs> um, the can I can I add to this question? A lot, a lot speak of you so highly that they talk about head of AFL roles no. and this sort of thing. Is that on the radar, or is that so far ahead that you? Oh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's not on the radar. To be fair, of um, even um, at the Swans, we've got a succession plan in place, and I'll um, take the CEO reins in November two thousand and eighteen. So that that's fourteen months away, um, but we've got a massive four weeks right now. So um, I've got my eye probably lifted just slightly above the horizon for fourteen months' time, but but anything beyond that. Um, Certainly not on the radar. Just on that run home for Sydney quickly, I will I will leave you alone in a second. When does this go to Airlingy? Is this a, is uh, maybe another week? Another week or so? Yeah. yeah. Um, zero and six and cooked. No team's ever played finals from there. Yeah. Does it, does it warm your heart a little bit that you may have made the right choice about the club <laughs> that you've chosen to commit your, uh, certainly your medium-term future yeah. to that, the club can stay strong at that point and actually now people are not only talking finals, they're talking mm. a possibility to win it. It's a pretty special achievement. Well, I mean, firstly, we've got to get there. Um, but um, I think the, the start, it's a, bit, it's a bit like what we were talking about before. You, it was an experience that was foreign to pretty much everyone at the club. Um, you know, Jared McVeigh would be the only player on the current list who was on a squad that didn't play finals. So it's, this is a club that's used to success. So at Zip 6, obviously, um, finals couldn't have been further away from anyone's mind. But what it did was it provided an opportunity to really interrogate what you do. Um, and you walk a fine line or you walk the line between excuses and mitigating reasons. And, and we found there were, there weren't, we weren't playing in the excuse space. We were, there were some mitigating reasons. We, we had only a handful of players complete a full pre-season. Um, we had some totally unforeseen injuries on the eve of the season to key players form and confidence drops off the back of that but most importantly we weren't playing well so what you do is you front and this and John Longmire was absolutely huge through this period of time confronted the facts around you know the key tenants to the game plan um, in terms of contested ball and the way we play our footy um, look at that fair and square in the eye and see the rankings of 16 17 and 18 and okay Let's roll the sleeves up and get on with it. Clearly, some of those other reasons started to rectify themselves, and and um, and we, you know, we we fought really hard to get the form back, and and now all we've done to be fair is give ourselves a chance, and we we know that with the work's still ahead of us, um, but there is an inner resolve and confidence from the last three months that our best is is good enough. And it was the the, the most key outcome of that entire tough time. The fact that players are not allowed to go for runs around 
the SCG precinct so that Dane Rampey doesn't break his arm again. Certainly Dane Rampey is to be nowhere near um, any sort of low-hanging chain. You know, you know those times when you know things just aren't going your way and we had, a, you know, as I say, a few issues through pre-season with the health of the list. Came up against a ramp in Port Adelaide in the first game up in Sydney and they did a number on us. We're licking our wounds from that and when the physio comes in and the doctor comes in to John and I and says, we think Dane Rampy's just broken his arm. You could have knocked, you certainly could have knocked me over with a feather and we know John Longmire's a big man, he would take less than a feather to knock him over. <laughs> but um, that's it is. It was one of those moments where you just shake your head and you think, how on earth did that happen? But then on the flip side, what happens is, you know, you do get some opportunities and um, Louis Melican comes off the rookie list and gets exposed to senior footy and... Ten weeks later, he gets a rising star nomination. So, um, glass half full. You take the uh, the silver lining out of that, but um, ramps won't be going near any chains anytime soon. <laughs> Let's hope not. The final word, and probably a tough one. If you could change one thing about football, what would it be? <laughs> oh, uh, change one thing about football. Um. You've stumped me there, Lingy. I, 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 there's change one thing. Football. Maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's to keep things constant for the, the next little bit. Um, um, I think the game this season clearly has been a really challenging season. Um, people are turning up in droves, and people are watching. Um, it's unbelievably competitive. So, um, so from that end, uh, not a lot needs to be changed other than people having a really good understanding of footy in Sydney, that it is very different and it's an extremely expensive place to live, Lingy. <laughs> no, no. Let's get a, a couple of little digs in there. No, but it's a, I think, and this is, again, I, I, um, it's a question without notice, but I love the game. Um, we've all been, or the ones who have been, um, fortunate enough to still be involved in the game, whether it be through playing, coaching, administration or media. Um, we, we're living out childhood dreams and... Um, that should never be uh, should never be undersold. Um, so there's always going to be things to have a gripe about, but the reality is we're all extremely fortunate to be involved in what we're doing. Well said. Thank you for your time, Hales. Always great to see you. No, no always worries. The great captain. No worries, Lingy. That was uh, no. I enjoyed that. That was um, that was good fun, and uh, and you are doing a magnificent job too, Lingy. Um, uh, Stop it. With all at Channel Seven. Just gave him a hundred bucks to say that. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, mate. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Footy Podcast, please make sure you leave us a review. It's simple. Jump on iTunes, search Talking Footy Podcast and give us a rating. Even leave us a review and tell us who you want to hear from. And don't forget to check out other episodes, including Bob Murphy, Eddie Maguire and my chats with Jimmy Bartell and James Kelly. Keep checking in for a new episode every week.